Good morning. Welcome to St. James. I'm glad you guys are here. It's good to see you. Welcome to everybody who's uh, watching online as well. I'm glad that you guys are here. Um, we did not put out the uh, guest registers uh, this week. I just realized that as I was standing up here. Um, if you're watching online, would you uh, email me or uh, text me if you have my phone number? It's on the back of the bulletin, I believe, but both the paper version and the digital version. And let me know that you're worshiping with us. If you're visiting with us this morning, make sure you don't leave before saying hi to me. Sometimes uh, people escape quickly. And that, that made it sound like you're some sort of prey, which I didn't mean that at all. But just, I would just like to say hi to you. Uh, can I run through uh, some of these notices on the back? Uh, first of all, tonight, um, we're not going to do evening prayer at 5.30, but we are going to do new members class at 6 o'clock p.m. So please join us for that. For those of you, of course, for those of you who are in that class, if you're not in that class and you just feel like hanging out in there, uh, you're more than welcome to join us at 6 o'clock. It runs to 7.30. Um, youth confirmation today, this is our last, uh, this is our last uh, youth confirmation class Except for uh, next week, confirmants, I'd like to meet with you for a few minutes afterwards to give you kind of a handy uh, reference for the questioning service, which we'll schedule for probably sometime after Easter. So today from um, 12 o'clock to 1245, and uh, then next week briefly, if you have any questions, parents, let me know. Uh, Midweek Lent service uh, this week, this is our last one, so please, uh, please come if you're able. Uh, we're working through the deadly sins, and the deadly sin that we're talking about this Wednesday is uh, sloth or laziness, which I, in my mind, that's kind of interesting because um, after Easter, I'm working on a, a, sermon, a short sermon series on Sabbath and on rest. So anyway, uh, jo join us this Wednesday evening for that. Uh, next week, this is the schedule for Holy Week, Monday, Thursday, 7 o'clock, uh, Good Friday, 7 o'clock. And then Easter Sunday, Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. For the Bible study hour at 10.30, though, we're going to do what we did back before um, COVID, which is we're going, to have, uh, a, uh, we're going to have an Easter breakfast downstairs uh, where we have some food and hang out with each other. And the kids, we're going to have an Easter egg hunt for them. Along those lines, uh, Jen Weber is going to have in the back um, a, a box for you to put. Uh, is Jen here yet? Okay, sorry. I, is it just candy or is it the eggs? Just the candy. So throw the candy in, uh, in the box back there uh, for the Easter eggs. Okay. Uh, today we are going to pass the offering plates, which we haven't done again since before COVID. So after the sermon, uh, we'll have a time um, to collect offering and we'll pass the offering plates. So that's a little bit, uh, we haven't done that in a while. And then again, the common cup is being offered, uh, so if you'd like the common cup, just don't take the individual cup. All right, this is announcement overload. Let's break it up a little bit by having Tina Inky come and give us another set of announcements, and then we'll uh, stand for worship. I'm Tina Inky, and uh, I'm part of the pictorial directory, and Meg Rathard is the other person, but she's not here, but she'll be over here later on. We wanted to just remind you that we're going to try to compile a pictorial directory, so we're asking everyone if you can sign up on this clipboard in the back of church, and we'll take your picture either after church service or after Sunday school every Sunday for the whole month of April, and if we have to go into May, that's fine too. But we'd like to get everyone that's here and a member of our church so that we can compile this, and it will be in our church newsletter, and it'll also be 
available that you can print it if you want a printed program too of it. And also, the important thing with that is the newsletter. We want everyone in the church to receive the newsletter. We started in January, and in order to do that, there is another sign-up on the little uh, desk back there, and we need your email. So we need your name and your email so we can get the newsletter to you. And that'll be coming out, I think, this week, Cheryl? I think it is. But if you have any questions, contact me or Meg Rathard. If you have a family photo that you would love to submit, because maybe the kids are at college and that, you can submit that to Meg, and we can put it in also. So thank you. Oh
continue in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sin to God. You are the Lord and you alone. You've made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that's on it, the seas and all that's in them, and you preserve them all. You have called us to yourself and given us a covenant. You have become our God and made us your people. And yet we have turned away from you. We have rebelled against you. You have delivered us many times according to your covenant mercies. You have warned us, and yet we have acted presumptuously. You have sent us prophets, and we have turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened our necks and would not obey your law. You are the Lord and you alone. You are our God, great and mighty. You keep covenant and steadfast love. We deplore our sins before you and before each other. They've only gotten us into trouble. They've only enslaved us. They have not given us the happiness they promised. Deliver us from our sin and the power and attraction of sin through the faithful suffering and death of our Savior, Jesus Christ, whose intercession we plead and in whose name we pray. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. Let's reflect on this forgiveness that God gives us now. God shows us his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The Psalm is one, uh, Psalm 126. It's about the return of God design. It's about the rebuilt temple. Psalm 126 celebrated God's pe- by God's people when they're in exile, looking forward to the day when they are able to return home and go to the temple and meet with God. And what I, th- what I love about Psalm 126 is that the first three verses that we're going to read is this vision of the future, and it's happy. And then there's kind of a break, and there's this remembrance that that's not where we are yet. Like, God, make it happen. So when we get to the end of uh, the third verse, uh, notice that. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy bringing his sheaves with him. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. Isaiah 43 also envisions this day when God is going to bring his people back out of exile, back home to the promised land. 
And basically what Isaiah 43, 16 through 21 is saying is, remember what God did with the Exodus? Well, this time he's going to do, do something new and something powerful. He's going to do a new Exodus. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down. They cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. So that's the first Exodus, Egypt's army dying in the, in, in the Red Sea. Isaiah goes on, though, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Forget the Exodus. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I'll make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beast will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people who I form for myself, that they might declare my praise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Israel in exile in Babylon has to cross a desert to get back home to the promised land. So unlike the first exodus where they crossed the water to be delivered, God says in the second exodus, you'll cross the desert, but it'll be okay. I'll give you water and I'll tame the wild animals. Okay, moving on to Philippians. The epistle reading is from Philippians chapter three. We just read this on Wednesday evening too. Indeed, I count everything as lost, Paul says, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already, already obtained this or am already perfect but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. She
We stand for the gospel reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 20. So this, is, this, happens, this story happens right after Jesus cleanses the temple, shuts the temple down. Uh, the religious leaders ask him, what gives you the right to do this? He says to them, he throws them that interesting riddle, uh, well, I'll answer that if you tell me first. Uh, John's baptism, was that from heaven or was it from man? And they're like, we can't say because if they say it's from man, the people will be upset with them because the people love John the Baptist. If they say it's from God, he's going to say, why didn't you believe him? Which is not just some sort of funny trick to get out of the question that they asked him. John the Baptist's message was fundamentally about Jesus. And so if they say John the Baptist came from God, what they're saying is, is that his announcement that you're the Messiah was legit. And they can't go there because they don't want to believe that. And Jesus turns from there to the crowd and tells them this story. He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. And then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He'll come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when the crowd heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is it that's written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. This is the gospel of the Lord.
may be seated. So this whole, this whole story this morning is about, it's basically about that question. Jesus, who gives you the right to shut the temple down? Who gives you the right to pass this sign of judgment on the temple? Because that's what it is. It's a sign of judgment. Jesus is saying, the temple's not necessary. You can shut it down and we'll all be okay. We don't need it anymore. Who gives you the right to do this? This, this story flows out of this. And Jesus, in answering this question, tells them a story about this vineyard, which I've, I said this a couple of weeks ago. And anytime we have a, a story from Jesus about vineyards, I always try to make this point to you guys that this is a story about a vineyard. It's not just a story about a vineyard, though. It's a story about Israel. Anytime you see Jesus or any, anybody in the Bible telling a story about a vineyard, it's always like a metaphor for Israel. This goes back to the Old Testament, by the way. And, and what it is is this, well, I'm going to read you a chunk of it from Isaiah 2, and I know I did this just, just a couple weeks ago, but let me do it again. The story of Israel, Israel's meta-narrative, uh, a meta-narrative is a big story that controls everybody else's little story. I, I, I talk about this a lot, but it's super important to understanding what's going on in the Bible, at large, but, but the story of the vineyard is kind of like a microcosm of the Bible. And Jesus is tapping into this meta-narrative. And it comes from several texts in the, Old, in the Old Testament, but maybe the most famous one is from Isaiah chapter 5, which I read last week, or two weeks ago. I didn't read Isaiah 27. I'm going to give this to you. Story of a vineyard. And remember, it's actually about Israel. Let me, Isaiah says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. So there's this vineyard. It's a beautiful place. He dug it, cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat, vat in it to make, to make wine. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. It wouldn't yield good grapes. Oh, now, O oh inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I've not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I'll tell you what I'll do to my vineyard, God says. I'll remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I'll break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I'll make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. But he looked for justice, and behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So the vineyard is like this metaphor for Israel. God builds this beautiful nation, this beautiful people. He calls them to be his, and he says, I'm going to raise you up, and you're going to bear fruit. Righteousness and justice, he says in the very last verse. Here. But they didn't do it, and so what he does is he abandons them. He tears down the wall. He lets the wild animals come in. This is basically about them going off into exile, into Babylon. But that's not the end of the story because several chapters later, Isaiah sees the vineyard repaired from chapter 27. In that day, when, when, when God comes to make things new, in that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it. Lest anyone punish it, I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I, I'm getting kind of bored, says taking care of this. I wish that there were thorns and briars to, to, to battle, but it's such a beautiful, perfect vineyard that there's nothing that, that could actually make it better. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. 
or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let the, vine, let, let the thorns and the briars make peace with me, and I'll let them become a part of the vine itself. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Israel constantly tells us, this is the meta-narrative of Israel. God called us to be this big, beautiful, royal nation of priests, but we failed. And God tore down the walls of our protection and sent us off into exile. But someday, God's going to come back and repair the vineyard and make it new, and we'll fill the whole world with our fruit, like Isaiah says. That's the story they tell us. So you see, this isn't just like a metaphor about, it's not just a story about a vineyard. It's like a big story that if you're, if you're a Jew living in Jesus's day, your individual story can fit into that. You were called to be fruit, but you failed. And so now you're in exile and the Romans are now in charge. But at some point, God's gonna return and he's gonna repair everything and he's gonna make the vineyard big and beautiful again. And Jesus, this is, a, this is what we call a meta-narrative. Jesus tells a story that taps into that meta-narrative. Now, you and I, I know I do examples like this all the time, just bear with me. You and I, we don't frequently tell stories about vineyards to make sense of who we are in our culture, but every culture has big stories, big meta-narratives that they tell. And, and, and one of the most important ones, I think that last time I talked about meta-narrative, I talked about money with you guys. I'll do something a little bit different today. The meta-narrative that's, that's, that, that, that taps into our psyche the best as Americans is this. There was once a small group of colonists who fled a big, bad, rich, mega empire, the most powerful empire in the world, because that mega empire refused to allow them to have religious freedom, said you have to worship the way we tell you, refused to allow them to have financial freedom, we are going to overtax you, refused to allow the little colonists to have political freedom. We're going to tax you without representation. But this little tiny group of colonists, against all odds, fights against the big, bad, powerful empire and wins and becomes the freest, most powerful, most beautiful city on a hill nation that ever existed. All of you were taught that story in school. And that's a big meta narrative. That's how we as Americans see ourselves. And when we tell each other stories, they typically try, or little stories, they typically try to tap into that story, not just because it makes sense to us, but to affirm that we're on the right track, to affirm that our meta-narrative is a true one. Have you ever thought about how many movies that you watch match up with this story? It could be a sports movie like Hoosiers or uh, The Mighty Ducks where this little tiny group, this little tiny team, this we, or Friday Night Lights, a team that's like weak and smaller and has everything going against it, goes up against the big, bad, cocky team from the rich neighborhood or that's got the huge gymnasium or that's got all the best equipment. And they go and the final scene of the movie is them beating them in a final. Do you know why Americans like movies like that? Americans like movies like that because they are Americans. Because that's actually the American meta-narrative. Going back to the late 18th century. And movies that we watch tap into that. Maybe it's, um, it could be fantasy movies, uh, like Lord of the Rings also taps into this. I know Lord of the Rings, the, the original story is written by, uh, written by a Brit, but it taps into this liberal dream of the small people, literally in the Lord of the Rings, the small people can beat the big, bad, powerful, evil people. 
And when we watch a movie like that or read a, or read a book like that, it like taps into who we are. It could be a romantic comedy where the good-looking boy is always at the end going to go for the awkward, cutesy, eccentric, sort of poor shop girl. Is not going to go for the snobbish, wealthy, you know, snooty rich girl. That's not the way those movies end. And if they did, we'd all be ticked off, right? It could be um, action movies. Superhero movies only make sense if there's a superhero to rescue a weak, tiny, oppressed people that can't defend themselves. That's the only way. Why does, why does that make sense to us? Is because, well, it's because we're Americans. And when something happens that cuts against that, we all find ourselves sort of like, uh, you know, uh, untethered from reality. From Do you guys remember uh, several years ago? This has probably been 10, 15 years ago. When there was a woman who accused the Duke lacrosse team of sexually assaulting her, and every single person, including myself, I heard that story and immediately thought, ain't that the way? The Duke lacrosse team. How much, of, how much bigger of a cliche can you get than that? Like a very, very expensive school. And it's the lacrosse team. It's all these preps. It's all these boys who walk around campus with their, you know, their sweaters tied around their necks. That's who it is. And of course they would do this. Of course they're entitled. And it turns out that it's not true. And everybody is shocked because that doesn't fit. You know, usually the big rich people are the bad guys in the stories that we tell. You know, they're the, they're the British soldiers. They're the redcoats. Uh, you know, they're the, they're the big school at the end of the game that's cocky and kind of bragging at halftime because they're up by 20 points. And the little school's got to go out in the second half and beat them so that we'll all have a satisfying movie. We don't like it when stories, when our stories get undermined it untethers us from reality, it undermines our view of ourselves, and it makes us, frankly, it makes us angry. If you went to watch a movie where the good-looking boy is kind of like, he's got this girl that he's dating, and she's like rich and snooty and snobbish, and she's kind of mean girlish, and there's other, this cute, sweet, awkward, nice girl, and at the end of the movie, he tells the cute girl, I'm sorry, she's got money and she's super attractive. I'm going to go with her. If that's the last scene in the movie, everybody in here would be ticked off. Why? Because rich girls don't deserve to get married? No, but it's, it's much deeper than that. It's cutting against who you are as an American. Jesus tells this story, and he tells a story. It's, it's, it's their big story, but at the end, he twists it. So everything goes wrong. Everything goes wrong. And, and look, this is why people try to kill him. Look, it's, the Sadducees don't kill him because, well, that guy believes in the resurrection. He deserves to die. That's not why they try to kill him. The Pharisees aren't like, well, your disciples don't wash their hands. I guess we'll try to murder you. That's not the way it works. You know how it works? Is if somebody consistently tells stories which says, your, big, your little stories which you tell to make you think that I fit into this big story and I'm doing okay, I'm telling you, you don't. If somebody tells stories like that often enough, People will try to get rid of them. It's the way it always works. And that's what's going on in this story. So I'm going to work through this just verse by verse if we can. Can you look down at the gospel reading with me? Jesus tells people this parable, and he's going to, he's going to be pulling all these echoes from Isaiah chapter 5 because he wants them to hear, I'm drawing you. And everybody knows what he's doing here, right? They're not like, okay, so like, why are you talking about vineyards? What is this? What, what, everybody who heard Jesus originally would know that the vineyard is Israel. And this guy is talking about our big story. Jesus is telling this story and he says, a man planted a vineyard. Well, you know who this is in Isaiah 5. It's God who plants the vineyard, right? 
and he lets it out to tenants. And he goes into another country for a long while. Now, let me tell you something. This is not about the second coming. This is about the first coming. God has abandoned his vineyard in Isaiah chapter five. He creates this vineyard, and then because God's people disobey, he goes away. And now, he's not there, but he sends from a distance to the tenants who are the leaders, you know, the kings and the judges and the temple authorities, and even if you like the, like the, the religious leaders, like the Essenes and the Pharisees, the various, you know, muckety-mucks in the religious world, those are the tenants. And God, he's not there. He's abandoned his temple. The prophets all tell us about this. He promises that he'll come back someday to his temple. But he's abandoned it right now. But he does send messengers to them. And this messengers, his servants, are the prophets, the Isaiahs, the Jeremiahs, the Ezekiels, who come and say, I've got something to say to you from God, and usually challenge the tenants, challenge the standing king like Jeremiah does, or like Ezekiel does, challenge the religious leaders who are there in exile with them, or Isaiah does, challenging all of them, the, the, the false prophets, uh, the religious leaders who say, we're going to be okay because we've got the temple. God sends these messengers to the tenants. Verse 10, when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Okay, everybody who's listening to Jesus, they're cool with the story so far. They all understand. God sent us Isaiah, Jeremiah. We rejected them. We sent them away. We should not have done that. Verse, uh, verse 11, he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Okay, so far, so good. Verse, uh, verse 13, then the owner of the vineyard, which by the way, the word owner there in Greek is not owner, it's the word Lord. The Lord of the vineyard, which back in Isaiah chapter five, verse uh, five is what, I mean, God is the Lord of the vineyard. It refers to him as the Lord of the vineyard there. Then the Lord of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. So far, so good. That's a part of the plan for many Jewish the way that the Jews, many Jews would have thought about the, the age to come is that we've rejected the prophets and God has abandoned us, but someday he's going to send his son, the Messiah, and the Messiah is going to finally make all things to right and punish the bad people, vindicate the righteous people, and set up this big, beautiful vineyard that can fill the whole world with fruit. So, so, so far, so good. But, but here's the twist in the story. Uh, verse 14, but when the tenants saw him, the, the, the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. Now, several commentators I saw, a couple things, several commentators I saw were like, that, that this is just kind of weird in the story. What, what benefit would that be? Well, actually, in the ancient world, this is what you did. Um, if you wanted to take over the country, if you wanted to, to, to do a revolution, to establish a coup, and to like, um, you know, set up your own kingdom, you had to make sure that you killed off all the heirs of the previous king. I think probably five or six months ago, I mentioned to you Richard III, who killed the two princes in the tower, who killed his nephews, one of whom was actually Edward V, was for several months, he's a young boy, but he was the rightful king of England. Why did he murder them? Because he was bloodthirsty and vindictive? Well, I mean, yeah, it's hard to deny that, that charge when you're murdering your nephews. But it wasn't so much like anger or hatred. You just have to do this. There was no way that he was ever going to be able to be king in peace if there was an alternative king out there still. 
And this is what they're doing. This isn't just like, oh, we don't like this guy, let's kill him. It's like, we don't want God in charge. We want us to be in charge. Don't send your son here. If you send your son here, we will kill him. We will offer him, we will off him because we need you, God. We need to put your name stamped on our buildings. We need to be able to walk down the street with your scriptures and reading them so everybody knows we're God people. We need your temple here in our midst. We need your ceremonies. But you personally, you actually get in the way. We want power and control. And when you send your son, we'll kill him. Well, this is actually super shocking. This is not what Jesus is supposed to say. He'll come. So, so verse 15, uh, they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to these, uh, do to these tenants? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. He's going to take away, the son's going to get killed, God's going to get rid of the, the leaders and give it to other people. And the people are shocked because that's not the way the story is supposed to go. The story is supposed to go, the son shows up and, and makes us all happy and fixes everything. And that's not what happens. So uh, verse 16, when the people heard this, they said, surely not. Now this is not like a skeptical surely not. This isn't like, surely not, no way. This is very, this is like a horrific no way. That, that can't happen. Actually, this is, um, for those of you, just five seconds for just a handful of you. For those of you who are familiar with Paul, many times in the book of Romans, actually does this in Colossians too. He, he'll say, he'll ask a question and then he'll say, no way. Should, for Romans 6, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? No way. That's not the way it works. It's these exact same words here that Jesus uses. The son's going to come and the tenants are going to kill him and then God's going to destroy everybody and give the vineyard to somebody else. No way. They say, no way. That's not going to happen. That's not the way this works. And then Jesus responds this way. So what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Okay, that sounds just, what does this have to do with each other? Hang with me for five minutes. Jesus quotes Psalm 118, which I feel like I've been quoting Psalm 118 just about every church service, at least once a month. I won't say every church service, but just about once a month, I quote Psalm 118 because it keeps coming up. Super important psalm. It's actually Martin Luther's favorite psalm. And so uh, for those of you who are Lutheran, it should be your favorite psalm too. Is that how that works? I'm not, I'm not sure. But anyway, it was Martin Luther's favorite psalm. And one of the reasons is this. Why is, so let's ask the question. Jesus tells them this story where the son gets killed and the vineyard is destroyed again and taken away. Why does Jesus quote Psalm 118 to say to the people, hey, don't worry. This is the way it's supposed to be. Because Psalm 118 is about the future rebuilt temple. The temple's been destroyed and in Psalm 118, the psalmist is looking forward to this day when it's rebuilt again and we can all go in and worship. Let me read to you from, a little bit from Psalm 118. Uh, let me start. Uh, if you're there, I'm going to start in verse 14. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord is valiant. In other words, the temple is being, the temple is being rebuilt because God is acting to do this. I shall not die, the psalmist says, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. 
So the figure at the center of this story about the rebuilt temple is one who's been disciplined severely, but manages in the end to not be dead. All right? Well, so if you're, this, if you're living back in the day, what's going on with that? For, for those of you who are Christians, you can clearly hear echoes of Jesus. He continues in verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness. That's the gates of the temple. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. Back to the psalmist. Walking into the temple now. The, the, the person at the center of this psalm going up into the temple to worship. If you, if you uh, we're not going to read it, but if you flipped over back into verse 27, the sacrifices are being re-offered again because the temple is restored and rebuilt. I thank you that you've answered me and have become my salvation. The stone, here's the verse that Jesus quotes. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. So what's going on here? Jesus is saying, remember Psalm 118? Remember about what's going to happen when the temple gets rebuilt? I know we've always thought that that psalm was super weird and it didn't make sense, but now I'm telling you what that psalm meant. It meant this. The temple is going to be rebuilt and God is going to come back home and live with us. And while the temple is being rebuilt, this weird thing's going to happen. They're going to be picking, the masons are going to be picking out these stones to build up the temple walls and there's going to be this one stone and they're going to be like, we can't use that stone. That stone is worthless. That stone is not going to help us build this temple up. And they're going to cast it aside. And then they're going to be rebuilding this temple. And they're going to come to the realization that, you know what? That actually might end up being the most important stone. That might be the cornerstone. That might be the stone that if we don't put it in here, this temple's not going to stand. And Jesus says, the stone that the builders reject is the sun. But by the way, this doesn't come out in English at all. It doesn't come out in Greek either. It comes out in Aramaic, which is the language they would have spoken. The word for sun, ben, is super similar to the word for stone, eben. It's just the same word with an E on the front. Jesus is doing a little play on words. The sun is the stone. The ben is the eben. That the builders rejected because they thought it's worthless and we don't need it and it's useless we don't need some construction worker coming up in here and telling us, the religiously trained, what to do. We don't, need, we don't need this construction worker coming up in here and telling us, the Sadducees, who've been appointed to this place by his imperial majesty, Caesar himself. We don't need some construction worker telling us what to do. The stone that the builders reject will be the stone at the head of the corner. And this, of course, this is the new meta-narrative. The new meta-narrative is that the vineyard is rescued because when the sun comes and they brutally kill him and murder him, it actually turns, that, turns out that's the thing that's needed to rescue the vineyard itself. The death of the sun is what you and I need. We need God to come here himself to defend us, to get defeated. But by getting defeated and rising from the dead, to win against everybody, not just the tenants, but against all the wild animals that are trying to attack the vineyard, but against every foe in the entire universe. That's what the son is doing. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And then he closes off with this reference to, uh, in verse 18 to Daniel 2, verse 44. Everyone who falls on that stone, everyone who falls on that heaven will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The stone the builders reject becomes the head of the cornerstone. That's good for the temple. I'm going to get killed, but it's actually going to mean the rebuilt temple. When I get killed and rise from the dead, I will be the new rebuilt temple. I will be the stone that houses the presence of God here on earth. 
I will be the stone that creates the building where you can come and get your sins forgiven. That's who Jesus is. But not just, it's not just you. It's everybody in the whole world. And he references this. When this stone falls on anybody, it will smash it to smithereens. Now, do you guys remember from Sunday school, Daniel chapter two, Daniel has this weird, no, 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 Nebuchadnezzar has this weird vision with all these, this big statue representing all the powerful kingdoms of the earth, you know, the, the uh, Neo-Babylonian empire and the Neo-Persian empire and the Greek empire and the Roman empire. And it's this big, beautiful statue. And then there's this stone that gives, get, gets carved out by God and thrown at the statue and the statue is shattered and crumbled. And Daniel, t- t- d- d- Nebuchadnezzar's like, what is the deal with that stone? That kind of freaks me out, honestly. You know, I, so I'm, I built this big, beautiful kingdom here and there's gonna come a stone and it's gonna blow this big, beautiful statue up. What's going on with that? And Daniel, Daniel assures him, in those days, in the last days, uh, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom himself that shall never be destroyed and nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. The stone that's rejected is made the head, the head of the cornerstone, but also that stone is used to throw, God will throw that stone up against the kingdoms of the world and smash them all to pieces. Every single person that you're scared of, every, sing, every single political power, economic power, social power, cultural power that you're scared of, the stone that was rejected is now the head of the cornerstone and is being thrown by God up against those stones and will smash them and destroy them and the kingdom of God will last forever. Okay, real quick, three takeaways. What does this have to do with us now? First of all, Jesus, know know this, this is a fact. Jesus will always be rejected, but will always be essential. The stone's gonna get rejected, but you can't build the building without it. Jesus, this is the way Jesus always is. He is always rejected and, and, and treated as less than, treated as irrelevant, worse than that, treated as offensive. But yet, he is the underpinning of humanity at large. He's the, one who, he's the one who by his own will keeps our hearts beating. He is the one who is going to rescue us someday. He's always treated as irrelevant, but is always essential. You just have to be aware of this and be mature. Okay, I got a Gen X illustration for you, for those who have ears to hear. Uh, may you hear this. Do you guys, do you guys who grew up when I grew up, do you remember Inspector Gadget? Okay, so Inspector Gadget is like he's, for, for you uh, boomers, he's the cartoon version of Maxwell Smart and Get Smart. Uh, Inspector Gadget is this uh, cartoon uh, detective, superhero guy. He's got, all, he's like basically bionic. He's got all different kinds of cool like equipment, like his arms stretch out and his body does all kinds of crazy things, all, kind, all kinds of cool electronic built into him. He's kind of a superhero. And he has this niece named Penny who he's constantly defending against the bad guys. But for those who watch the show know that, that Inspector Gadget is actually kind of a buffoon. He thinks that he's in charge. He thinks that he's winning the day against uh, uh, Dr. Claw, I think is the bad guy's name. He thinks that he's beating Dr. Claw, but it's actually Penny, his niece, who's controlling everything and is actually winning all the victories. And Jesus is more Penny than Inspector Gadget. Your favorite political party is more Inspector Gadget. You know, the, the economic system of this world is more Inspector Gadget. And Jesus, I just, I just, you can only take this so far, right? I mean, it's just an analogy, of course. Jesus is more penny. Jesus is controlling things. 
Jesus is, making, Jesus is upholding righteousness with the word of his mouth. Jesus is protecting and defending his people. While everybody else is like, you know, Penny, just be quiet. I'll take care of you. Uh, the church, you know, kind of dead weight. I guess you guys have to be here. We, you know, we get in trouble if we tried to ban you outright. Uh, you just kind of keep your mouth shut and, uh, you know, you worship your God in private. Jesus is actually the one who's running and controlling everything. Don't panic. Jesus is actually in charge. You know how Penny gets away? You know how Penny does this? She doesn't, she, she doesn't like try to convince her uncle that really you're kind of an idiot and I'm in charge. She just is the most mature person in the world. Christians are called to be the mature person in the room. We're, we're not in charge, of course, right? Actually, we are in charge. We're ruling and reigning with Jesus. It's in a way that's like Penny. It goes unnoticed, and the world would not survive without us. Glenn Carbon would not survive without St. James Lutheran Church. May it be so, Father. They don't need us, they think, and yet we're desperately essential. Number two, the Christian's outlook on history, because of this, the Christian's outlook on history must always be provisional. We'll talk more about this in adult Bible study coming up in just a few minutes. But you can't look at the stone and be like, oh, the stone's worthless. Well, that's it. Let's move on. Things are not always as they appear. What looks weak to us might actually be the power of the gospel. The crucified son looks like it's worthless and irrelevant. And it actually is the center of human history and the center of God's plan to rescue the world. Do not pass judgment before the time. If someone, there's a song by David Wilcox that Angela and I like, I quote it in here once a year. I've got it scheduled. This is the Sunday when I'm supposed to quote it again. And it goes like this. It's about a play. And it says, if someone wrote a play just to glorify what's stronger than hate, would they not arrange the stage to look as if the hero came too late? You wouldn't go see a play or a superhero movie where like the superhero walks in at the very beginning of the movie blows up all the bad guys, and then there's an hour and a half, or today's movie's two and a half hours, of like, so what goes on next? There's nothing bad, there's no bad guys. Oh yeah, we just like you being here. That would be totally boring. If you're gonna write a story to glorify what's stronger than hate, would you not arrange the stage to look as if the hero came too late? It's almost in defeat, looking like the evil side will win. So on the edge of every seat, from the moment that the whole thing begins, it's love that built the ocean. It's, it's, what are the words? It's love that, uh, you don't remember. And it's love that set these stones. And it's love that built the stage here. Although it looks like we're alone. And though the scene is set in shadows, like the night is here to stay. And there's evil cast around us. It's love that wrote the play. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Like, look around. Everything's out of control. The bad guys always, rent, always win. The stone gets rejected. Nope. Actually, love wrote the play. Don't judge. History is entirely provisional. Don't be like, oh, it's out of control. Or, oh, we're making great strides here. Just wait. God's about to do something cool and unexpected. Quote from 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Paul says, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. You are not allowed to say as a Christian, you are not allowed to say, we're doomed. You're not allowed to say that. Neither are you allowed to say, we've got this under control until the Lord comes. And then we can say, you did all things well, Jesus. Third thing, and we'll be done. The best way that we can orient ourselves, let me circle back to the beginning about what the vineyard story is. The best way we can orient ourselves to these two realities, living as people connected to the stone, living as brothers 
and sisters of the sun, the best way we can orient ourselves to this reality is to intentionally live in Jesus's new story, the subverted story. Don't live in alternative stories. Your culture is trying to pump you full of alternative stories. Stories where, listen, our side is the goodies. Their side is the baddies. We can make everything good, but you got to side with us. Actually, you need to be saving up money because the only way for you to be truly satisfied is if you have a big, nice nest egg when you retire. You've got to align yourself with this political party. If you don't, things are going to be out of control. Your culture is trying to pump because they want to sell you stuff, because they want to control you. Your culture is trying to pump, pump you full of alternative stories. You need romance. If you don't have real, transcendental, mind-blowing romance, you'll never be happy. Do not listen to these alternative stories. They are fake stories. Now, how do you do this? I'm just going to give you one practical tip, and then we're going to be done. I do not say this as law. I'm offering this up as a possible solution to being in Jesus' story, to making Jesus' story the story of the rejected one who rules the world, the story of the weak one who is the strongest, the story of the foolish one who is now the wise man of the universe. First of all, you've got to be in the Bible. You've got to be in the Bible. Please do not say, oh man, I'm just so scared that things aren't gonna work out. If you're not reading the Bible, if you're not living in the one true subversion of the fake stories, of course you're gonna be afraid. Of course you're gonna believe that romance is gonna save you. And then five years into your marriage, you're gonna be like, oh no, what have I done? Of course you're gonna believe that money's gonna save you. And then you're gonna be like, I don't know, I don't have enough. Of course you're gonna believe that one of the political parties is gonna make all things right. And every four years, we gotta cycle back to this. They didn't do their job again. Well, let's try to find somebody new. Of course you're gonna live in tension and frustration. If you're not living in the one true story, pro tip, you can do with this whatever you want. I don't, I don't say this as law, I just suggestion. However much you're on social media, figure out how much you're on social media per day. Be in God's word more than that, five minutes more than that. Whatever the story is that you're, however much, you know, wherever you're, however you get your stories, a lot of us it's social media, maybe it's entertainment. If you're going to go watch a two-hour movie this weekend, which you should do, by the way, I'm not, I'm not a fundamentalist. I'm not saying don't listen to the other stories. You need to listen to the other stories. But when you do, if you're going to go watch a two-hour movie, make that over the course of that week, you are with God for two hours and five minutes. Make sure that this story is the main story in your mind. And all the other stories, you can kind of see them for the shams that they are. But the only way that you'll do that is if you're living in the real story. God is determined to rescue us, but it's not going to be the way we expect. It's definitely not going to be the way our culture tells us to. It's going to be the way that he's decided to do it. With the stone the builders rejected. With the son crucified and risen for me and you. Amen. What song of angels could describe Could endless praises be enough To echo for his sacrifice How worthy is the Lamb of God Beyond all might or skill of pen Still we can 
Please stand. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us and for being good to us. Thank you for calling us all by your name and for drawing us here to yourself. Father, bless us with your presence today, with the, um, with the power of your word, with you personally speaking your word to us, with you, Father, present in, here in Holy Communion, giving us your love in the person of your son's body and blood. Father, we need you so badly. We've tried to do it so often on our own. We confess that we have fallen prey to the false stories of our culture, that we've told ourselves things that aren't true about reality, that we've told ourselves things that aren't true about ourselves and about our relationships, about right and wrong. Father, would you adjust our hearts and our minds and our wills to match up with your story, with your reality, Lord, in your mercy. Father, I pray that you be with every one of our sister churches here in this area this morning, especially here in this area, that as your story is proclaimed and as your people receive it with praise and thanksgiving and as they come to the rail to worship you here uh, by receiving your son's body and blood, may your name be glorified. May unbelievers be drawn to you. May believers be pulled closer to you, living lives that are more in love with you more in love with your word, more in love with each other. Father, would you be with every single church here in Glen Carbon? Against all odds, Father, you've pulled off the biggest revolution of all history. You, the king of the, your son, the king of the Jews, has now taken over 
Glenn Carbon, and would you allow us, Father, all of us churches together who worship your name and preach your gospel, would you allow us to be faithful colonists of you, lovingly representing you to those around us, giving hope and purpose and meaning, living lives and having conversations and relationships of righteousness and peace and justice. We need your help to do this, Father, Lord, in your mercy. I pray for all of those here with us this morning and uh, who are watching who are struggling with all different kinds of issues, Father, health issues and relationship issues and finance issues, trust issues. Will you heal those? Will you point us back to yourself? Will you help us to know and believe that by the power of your son's resurrection, you are making all things new, that you will someday put all things to right? I pray especially this morning that you would be with these people who are having uh, uh, medical and physical issues right now. We pray that you would bless and heal Mike Tiemann that you would bless and take care of and heal Shanna Covarubius, that you would give healing and strength to the body of Pastor Ken Kiley. Lord, would you make your name great by healing these and all of us. Lord, in your mercy. We can only pray these prayers because you, out of your infinite goodness and mercy, have sent your son Jesus to die for us, to rise for us, to ascend for us, to indwell us with his Holy Spirit. And now you've brought us into your throne room so that we as your children can boldly come before your throne of grace and pray all these prayers to you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, O Lord our God, King of all creation. For you've had mercy on us and given your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Grant us your Holy Spirit, gracious Father, that we may give heed to the testament of your Son in true faith, and above all, firmly take to heart the words with which Christ gives to us his body and blood for our forgiveness. By your grace, lead us to remember and give thanks for the boundless love which he manifested to us, when by pouring out his precious blood he saved us from your righteous wrath and from sin, death, and hell. Grant that we may receive the bread and wine, that is, his body and blood as a gift, guarantee, pledge of his salvation. Graciously receive our prayers, deliver and preserve us. To you alone, O Father, be all glory, honor, and worship with the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Let's pray together in his name the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom 
and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
stand. And now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. We're going to uh, start doing something a little bit different today, and that's this. If anybody here would like to pray with somebody at the church, and you don't, it doesn't have to be like a big deal. It could just be you just want to spend some time in prayer with somebody else. We're going to have a group of people up front here, and if you want to come forward and pray after the service with us, like maybe off to this side or that side, please, uh, please feel free to come do that. We're going to be doing this every week from now on. So um, be comfortable. It'll be maybe a little bit different. We normally go that way. So, uh, but it's offered if, if you'd like it. Okay, go in peace.